Good morning. Hi, I'm Pig. Um, my wife, Yvette, and I have been coming to Crosspoint for, well, since 2008, uh, I guess 14 years. And uh, we've been covenant members. Uh, I'm currently the bookkeeper for the church. And uh, today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's hear God's word. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Pig. If you're new to Crosspoint, uh, his first name is Eric, um, and Pig is not a derogatory nickname. I just need to clarify that. If you have a Bible, open it up to 1 Corinthians 5. We're going to be looking at that entire uh, chapter this morning. If you're new to Crosspoint, we have been tracking our way through 1 Corinthians. Uh, since over the last couple months, we'll be in 1 Corinthians until April of next year with a few stops along the way. So encouraged by this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church to encourage them in the faith, to see them grounded in the gospel and continue to grow up in the Lord. If I get sideways as a pastor, if my uh, doctrine or teaching becomes heretical or false to the gospel of Jesus Christ, if my way of life starts to drift away from godliness and you're, and you're seen in me, for instance, me becoming dependent upon alcohol or abusive or bully-like in my leadership, what is the church to do? What's the church to do? How does the church pursue me and my heart and soul in love? If a covenant member here at Crosspoint, maybe someone leading a community group, uh, teaching kids in sun chasers or hype, if their way of life becomes entangled in sin, if, for instance, they're abandoning their spouse or giving way to habitual sexual sin, if you are their spouse and they're walking away from you, how do you want the church to pursue them? 
how are we as fellow covenant members to pursue that wandering person in a love that is reflective of Jesus Christ? If a covenant member becomes entangled in destructive and sinful habits, such as ongoing gossip, murmuring that is bringing division to the church, or rage-filled, abusive tendencies in their home or their workplace, what's the role of the church toward that person? How does the church seek to reflect the fullness of grace and truth to a fellow brother or sister who has become entangled in sin or rebellious toward the Lord or strained from His commands which, is for, which are for their good? At the same time, in those situations, how does the church not only pursue the brother or sister, but how do they, how do they witness to the watching world, to the community at large, toward the unreached, unsaved community around them? The answer is as to why and how and when the church engages in these type of cases can be summarized under the subject of church discipline or God's discipline through the church. Now, in a gathering this size, let alone with those watching online or those who will watch later, there are those who have never heard of this subject or seen it lived out in a church. There are also those who have seen it done poorly or harmfully in a church. So immediately your defenses might be up. You, you might have grown up in a very legalistic church. And so the idea of church discipline harkens back some hurtful memories. So if you imagine a bell curve, if you will, as it relates to this subject, there are probably 10% on one side who think, I, I've never heard of this subject, or I don't like this subject, or a church that loves Jesus and loves people should never be about this subject, never practice it. And then on the other side of that bell curve, the, the 10% over here, they want to throw a flag on anything and everything. Walking around as self-appointed judges on everyone else's way of life while skipping over judging their own. So sadly, they kind of like this subject. They kind of like the idea of removing someone from membership. I've met people on both, both ends of the spectrum, both 10% gaps or ends. And then in the middle, there's the 80% who recognize that, yeah, this is the teaching in Scripture, but I'm not sure how it's supposed to live out or what it's supposed to look like or how to do it in a, in a gospel-centered type of way. It's not a subject that comes up often in Scriptures, and yet it most certainly is a subject that's talked, talked about here in 1 Corinthians 5. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 18. It's spoken of in Galatians 6. This is one reason why I enjoy preaching through entire books sequentially because we hit subjects in our flesh that we wouldn't go November 6th. Let's talk about church discipline, breakfast, baptisms, church discipline, do it. <laughs> we wouldn't do that. But this is God's sovereignty, his, his goodness toward us through his word. It's not an every other page topic in the scriptures, nor is it an every other day topic in the life of the church especially as it relates to the latter stages of discipline. And yet we'd be wise as people who desire to be anchored to the Word to grow in our understanding of this area where we could love one another well, love one another as family members in the way of Christ, and love those yet to be reached. Because simply put, if it's me, if it's you, if it's someone who you love, someone who is dear to you, someone who you pray for, who you live with, do life with, who was once walking on the straight and narrow and now you start to see them go sideways, you'd want the church to love you and I enough to pursue us. 
We would not want the church to be indifferent or cold or stick our head in the sand like an ostrich and go, well, maybe someone else would do that. I don't know if I... We'd want someone to love us enough to pursue us, to engage with us, to pray for us, to not be indifferent to our wandering, but even especially in our rebellion and wandering, to love us. 1 Corinthians 5 will, will help us grow in our understanding and how to live this out. A few years ago, our elder team read through the book, God Redeeming His Bride, which then led us to work on a more extensive document around this subject, a document to help articulate the why and the how, to help us in our understanding and application of God's discipline through the church. That document lives on our website under Beliefs, Covenant members, that, that's a link at the bottom of every monthly email I send to you. It's also, it'll be in Wednesday's email. I also have paper copies of it for you. I did not put one on your front door at home, but all those other avenues are possible for you to read. I had a friend in a community group message me this week saying, hey, I see 1 Corinthians 5 is coming up this week, and I read the passage, and I got a lot of questions. What does this mean? I sent him, answered a couple things. We talked about it, but I also said, read through this. It's eight pages, okay? It's eight pages. Read through it. Read through it because it helps give understanding around it that I don't have time to in a 30 or 35-minute message. It covers our conviction around it, how we see it in light of the gospel, what are the steps involved, some frequently asked questions, as well as 15 uh, myths, if you will, and then comparatively some, some truths that speak into what we might incorrectly believe about it. So I encourage you to look at that. Let's look at the text, verses 1 and 2 in chapter 5. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are arrogant, Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? If you remember from last week when we looked at the end of chapter 4, we see and hear in Paul a father's tone pleading with the Corinthians to, to repent of their arrogance. Because pride has been a thread through the first five chapters. Pride that's leading to divisions, for example. Pride that's leading them to exalt human leaders. And now pride that is leading them to take inaction or leading them to inaction in the situation. And what is this situation? Well, the, there's an ongoing sexual relationship between a member of a church, member of the church, and his unbelieving stepmother. And so why is this relationship occurring? Well, it could be strictly physical attraction. Could be per, it could be uh, in that way. Stepmothers were often closer in age to the husband's children, if not even younger in that day and age, the relationship might have even had financial motivations. The son hoping to stop his stepmother from remarrying so that he would not lose his father's inheritance. So greed could potentially be a motivation here as well. Whatever the reason, what we see is that such a relationship, even in a pagan Roman society, wasn't even seen in a good light. So it's not even culturally acceptable, let alone acceptable for those who claim and confess the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so what is Paul's charge to the church? Well, first of all, it's a rebuke to the church for their inaction. You know what's right to do, but you refuse to do it. He's rebuking their complacency, their compromise, and their arrogance that is leading to such inaction 
leading to these kind of attitudes. Paul also calls the church to remove or exclude this man from the congregation. And he will give that charge to remove the man in a variety of ways in this passage, both directly and indirectly through metaphor. The church is tolerating this public sin in their midst that even the unsaved Gentile pagan world of of the city of Corinth would not tolerate. They're called to be a light to the nations, not to blend in with the nations. They are to be a light in the darkness, not to blend in with the darkness. He writes verse 2, and you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief? The situation should bring grief to the congregation. Grief that someone's heart has become entangled in sin and following the ways of the world. Grief that this person's public sin is affecting the community of faith here at Corinth. Grief that this church's public testimony was being tarnished by their inaction. So why are they prone to not do anything? Why are they avoiding to lovingly confront? It could be a few reasons. Many commentators suggest that this, this man had a high standing in the church, a visible position. So they're more concerned with, the public, with his public status than they are about his heart, about his immorality, which in the context of the letter, we could see that. They were prone to exalt human leaders up in worship of them for earthly reasons, which then makes them susceptible to, to ignore blatant immorality in his life. He easily could have been a generous financial supporter, and to lose such a person's favor could, could literally cost the church. We can trust from the context of this letter that, that it was for earthly, worldly reasons as to why they, they are not removing this man from the church. Our sin never affects just us. It is never simply, oh, it's, this isn't going to affect anybody, even if it's private and secret in the dark, it's still affecting everyone around you. That's what this church incorrectly assumed, that, that sin is just an individual thing. It doesn't affect us. It doesn't affect the, the lost world. But rather, it affects everything around us, including the generations after us, including those yet to trust in Christ. Verses 3 through 5, Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Although not physically present with them, Paul is able to act with authority because the Holy Spirit is present in his people. When they are gathered, when they're scattered, Paul calls the church to action. He doesn't propose an idea for them to, hey, guys, think about this. Would you consider this? Would you vote on this? He's calling them to action. Paul has already pronounced judgment upon both the man in rebellion and the church unwilling to take action. And notice that Paul's instruction is to the church, not the immoral man, because the church stands or falls together. It's the church's role to pursue the entangled man, not Paul's. In Matthew 18, when Jesus teaches on the subject, you will notice how the group involved in the pursuit enlarges as the situation escalates. It enlarges, the circle involved enlarges as it escalates. And there are four escalating steps laid out in three verses in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault 
between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Verses 4 and 5 in 1 Corinthians 5 follow the same pattern as Matthew 18, 17. The latter stages of church discipline involve telling the church, meaning the covenant members of the church, not Sunday gathering, not live stream. It's telling the members of the church. And if the person doesn't respond to the pleas of the fellow covenant members of the church and repent, then the church is to remove the person. Verse 5 again, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. To hand him over is to, as one person wrote, turn him back out into Satan's sphere outside the edifying and caring environment of the church. When a person's heart has become hardened toward the Lord, hardened toward his word that is for their good, hardened toward fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are desiring to speak the truth in love. Their rebellion and stubbornness is saying, I no longer want to be shepherded. I no longer want to be cared for or loved. I want to do life by myself, have myself be my own authority, and I want to live away from the care and protection of the flock. That's what their actions are saying. And so to hand someone over to Satan is to say, okay, have it your way. Have it your way. Not in a dismissive way, but in a broken-hearted way. Okay. You want to sow to the flesh? You will reap to the flesh. Think of the videos of when animals attack. Out from the protection of the herd or the flock. But understand when you leave the protection of the flock, that's where the prowling lion prowls around, seeking to devour, seeking to destroy. Jesus said in John 10.10, his mission is to steal, kill, destroy. Outside. If you're a parent, one consequence you've probably used, we used with our kids, to shape their child's heart shape your child's heart is that of isolation to remove them from community like okay you can leave the dinner table now you can go to your room leave your devices whatever go have some prayer time go have some thought reflection time your prayer as a parent not only is to bring better peace to the dinner moment right there <laughs> but also ultimately your, your prayer is that in the quiet out away from community that they would the Lord would bring about godly sorrow over their sin, a desire to humble themselves, an awareness of the goodness of the good shepherd. Literally and metaphorically, this Corinthian man is to be excluded from the community of faith. And what is the hope in the exclusion? Because there's most certainly a hope. If you see it, there's most certainly a hope in Matthew 18 even, in that final step. And what is the hope? The hope is that in the exclusion the flesh might be destroyed. And as a result, a person might be saved in the day of the Lord. Destruction of the flesh doesn't mean his earthly death, but rather death to his sinful desires, his sinful, rebellious flesh. That's talked about in Romans 8. 
as well as Galatians 5. In Galatians 5, we see examples of, of when we choose to be led by the flesh and not the spirit, and the fruit of the spirit or fruit of the flesh is obvious, Paul writes, including things such as idolatry, sexual immorality, strife. And so Paul's prayerful hope is that in the exclusion of the man, it might bring him to himself, to the end of himself. Similar to how the prodigal son says, I'm done with you, dad. You might as well die. Give me your inheritance. I want to go live as my own authority, as my own king. And then Luke 15 says at some point, he comes to his senses in the midst of pig slop. He has come to the end of himself thinking, what have I done? And he returns and he repents and there is rejoicing in that. There is celebration in that. There is not work your way out of it. There is rejoicing in the repenting. Paul's prayer is that a person might be saved on the day of the Lord, where in the end the spirit of life might reign and rule in his heart and not, and not the fruit of the flesh. The removal is intended to wake them wake them from their blindness, wake them from their pride. It's the church saying, we fear for your soul. We're not just concerned about your outward behavior, but your heart, because everything flows from it. So this is not a legalistic church saying, hey, you need to improve your works. You need to perform better. You need to show up a little bit better. You need to keep in the light what's in the light. You need to hide better. That's not what this is. This is a gospel church that's saying your willful, public, sinful acts reveal that your heart is not walking with the Lord. Your heart is not in glad submission to Him, but rather your heart reveals that you're rejecting the Good Shepherd. You want nothing to do with the Good Shepherd who desires to shepherd you in the fullness of His grace and truth, that His commands are for your good. Verses 6 through 8, Paul continues to give further instruction. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So verses 3 through 5 is, why is it good for the man to be removed and the hope of repentance, restoration, salvation? These verses then are as, why is it good for the church for the man to be removed? And Paul uses the metaphor of yeast or leaven. Heather loves to make bread at home. I know nothing about how to make bread at home. I can clean the dishes. I can taste test at the end and say, wow, my wife's good. Thank you, Lord. Right? The one thing we all understand about bread is the effect that a small amount of yeast has on it. Yeast blooms, it grows, it affects the entire batch of dough. It doesn't just remain in a corner, but it works its way through all of it. It changes the composition, the texture, the chemistry, the end result. In the same way, this man's unchecked public flagrant sin, while still a part of this local church, is affecting the whole church it's leading others astray thinking well th well this guy isn't being pursued or rebuked so so i guess sexual immorality or greed or whatever the motivation is it's no big deal 
It's causing the surrounding unsaved community who knows of the situation to misunderstand what it means to follow Jesus. Oh, you can, you can keep the old creation here and you can pretend it's a new creation here and that's what it means? Oh, okay. I, didn't, I thought old creation gone, new creation come. But okay, I guess we can split the fence. We can ride the fence. The church is willingly sticking their heads in the sand like an ostrich and it's having a transformative, not in a good way, transformative effect upon the church. It's changing the composition, the texture, the chemistry, the end result. In verse 7, he reminds the church, remember who you are. You are an unleavened batch, meaning in Christ the old leaven has been removed. The flesh crucified upon the cross, buried in a tomb. You're now saints, sanctified in Christ Jesus is how he began this letter. As one author wrote, what Paul is saying is what they must become is what they already are by the grace of God. What they must become is what they already are by the grace of God. You're clean in Christ thanks to the faithful work of our Passover lamb. And so knowing who you are, Paul calls them then to repent from the yeast of malice and evil that has worked its way into the church and walk in a new way. Walk in who you are in Him as those who are trusting in the blood of the Lamb covered by His sacrifice, made holy in His sight. Turn from evil and malice and turn toward who you are in Christ which will produce sincerity and truth. Verses 9-11, through 11, Paul works to correct a misunderstanding in the church. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, otherwise you'd have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. So Paul had sent an earlier letter to this church, and yet the church either misunderstood or disagreed with Paul's teaching. And so the church had taken his instruction not to associate with sexually immoral people as to disassociate with all immoral people, both in and outside the church, those trusting in Jesus, those yet to trust in Jesus, those saved, those not saved. And so the church then is thinking, thinking, well, that seems impractical, Paul. That seems too harsh. Maybe it's a genuine misunderstanding. Or maybe it's them just playing dumb, like, oh, we didn't understand what you meant, and... Um, that's, they're trying to justify an excuse for their inaction. And so Paul is saying, you're still going to be in the world, church. You're in the world for a mission. And a mission, a mission that only is on this side of heaven. A mission to reach the unreached with the gospel that leads to transformation from the inside out. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister. So what does that mean? Well, it's similar again to what Jesus said in Matthew 18, 17. One author wrote, he wasn't saying they should give them the cold shoulder or cut off all ties. The image is that of a vine weaving around and attaching itself to the trunk of a tree. And that is what is to be avoided. Because when relationships get intertwined, he writes, it's hard to see clearly. It's hard to see objectively, no matter how objective one thinks he can be. I've seen this repeatedly. A brother or sister in Christ thinking, well, I'm not going to be led into temptation 
by another wandering or rebelling brother or sister, and in doing so, their lives get intertwined. Their spiritual eyesight goes dark. In Galatians 6, the warning in Galatians 6 comes to pass as they fall into the same exact temptation of the fellow brother or sister. That is what Paul's warning of here to the members of the Corinthian church when he says, do not associate. Don't associate. Don't get intertwined. Don't get entangled. Don't start believing the same lies that the immoral person has believed. Paul writes at the end of verse 11, do not even eat with such a person, meaning they are to be excluded from the Lord's Supper and other meals when the church gathers for fellowship. Because in the example of the Passover meal, it was a meal intended to celebrate the saving work of the Lord. And such is communion for new covenant believers. An opportunity to hold the bread and juice and to be reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as our Passover lamb. And so the person who is willfully disregarding Jesus Christ as the lamb of God is not to take such a meal. Verse 12, further clarification on who the church, on who church discipline is for and who it is not for. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. Don't expect the world to live for the kingdom of God when it doesn't trust in the king of kings. We struggle with that right now in our, in our nation. Don't expect the world to live for the kingdom of God when it doesn't trust in the king of kings. We need to show and tell of the king of kings and how goodness it is, how good he is. Too often the church is trying to enact discipline upon an unreached world while at the same time ignoring blatant yeast of hypocrisy in their own hearts or in the hearts of the local flock. They're justifying their own sin while judging the world, which leads to a confusing, let alone cancerous testimony to the world. The church is, is responsible to love, encourage, nurture, and to discipline those within its care, those within its flock who are trusting in the good shepherd. And we are to be active in loving one another in that, in that way for the benefit of one another's souls, for the health of the church, and most importantly, or of equal importance, for the church's testimony to the people yet to be reached, yet to be baptized. What happens internally has an outward effect on the community at large and the people that we are all praying for and sharing the gospel with that we would pray and hope that one day they might go public with their faith. Before we move into communion, I want to read an excerpt from this document uh, that I mentioned earlier. It's adapted from that book, God Redeeming His Bride. It's taking some stuff, adding some, some content of our own. But I want to read this. It's a longer, longer section here, but it's church discipline in light of the gospel. And I think it will summarize it well before we move into communion. We are created in the image of God, and we are created to reflect God through our lives. However, because of sin's entry into God's created order, all of God's creation is marred by sin. Things are not what they're supposed to be. By nature, we are all sinful, resulting in continual rebellion against God. But because of God's rich mercy and great love, He redeems His people through the finished work of Christ on the cross and brings us as sinful human beings back into a right relationship with Himself. 
The sad reality for us as Christians is that one, we still struggle to believe in who God is, even though he's revealed himself to us in scripture. Two, we still struggle to believe in what God has done for us in and through the gospel. And three, we still struggle to believe that God promises and his power applies to us. This struggle is to live the str- this struggle to live out the gospel takes place within the context of our everyday lives and relationships. Despite the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, we are all still weary and wayward sinners who need help every step of the way to better understand, believe, and walk in a way pleasing to the Lord. A way that brings glory to Him by building up His body in love and advancing His kingdom in a dark and dying world. Every member of Christ's body needs one another to remember that this life is a journey toward heaven that requires continual repentance, grace, and endurance. This is why our church experience must be more than attending services and programs. We must live in meaningful community together, learning to bring the gospel to bear on the personal sinfulness that we so often tolerate. This is not a nitpicky holiness club, but rather a loving family. A loving family that cares for each other enough not to allow sin and unbelief to entangle our lives and hinder our joy in the Lord and His good news. Church discipline, then, is the loving process we use to confront sin and unbelief and call one another back to faith in the gospel. The last paragraph, with the gospel of Jesus Christ in view, we understand that the intent of church discipline is to move us as a people toward glorifying our God and enjoying Him forever. The goal is not to obey the law, but rather experience new life that we have in Christ, enjoy His love and grace in the context of the family of God as we live in accordance to His word. Because in Christ, we are no longer orphans, but sons and daughters of the Father and brothers and sisters in Christ. We've been brought into a new spiritual eternal family that the Lord is using now in ongoing ways in our ongoing struggles against sin. Verse 7 again, Paul writes, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch as indeed you are, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. When we take communion, remembering his, his broken body and his shed blood, the perfect selfless sacrifice of our Passover lamb, it should wake us. It should remind us of the goodness of our Lord and Savior his great love for us, his willingness to die in our place so that we might live and how we've been brought now toward himself and toward one another. You don't need to be a member of Crosspoint to take communion. The Bible says you need to be a believer, a a one who trusts in Jesus. As the First Impressions team hands out the element, I I want to read to you one more lengthy passage from Stephen Um. Paul says in verse 7, that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. And what he's doing here is deliberately bringing us into another world, the one that surrounds this meal. Thousands of years ago, people were groaning under the weight of the oppression that was laid on them by their stubborn and unjust captors. To make matters worse, they were obstinate and oppressive themselves, unwilling to change or seek help. But in spite of all of this, someone intervened with a plague of death, It would strike their captors and set them free. But there was a problem. The plague 
was sent to swallow up the stubborn, the oppressive, the unjust, but that wasn't just for their captors, but for the very people themselves. So what could they do? The blood of a sacrifice painted on the lintels and the doorposts would cause this plague of death to pass them by. The blood of another, a substitute, would protect them from danger and save them from death. And now, thousands of years later, this very same tale would play itself out yet again. There was a plague of death for the obstinate, the stubborn, the unjust, you and me. But again, someone would would intervene with the blood of another, a substitute, a sacrifice that would protect us from danger and save us from death. Christ, our Passover lamb. And his body and blood saves us and changes us because we can't save and change ourselves in our own power. That's why we come and celebrate this meal together. Because his gospel is still at work in us. We'll take the elements together as one unified family of faith afterwards. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the juice. As we close, we are going to pray and we're going to sing one song during this last song as an opportunity to, uh, to give an offering. If you're a guest with us, uh, don't feel obligated by any stretch to, to give. This is an opportunity for us to just continue in worship as, as the people of God. So Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for setting us free. The story of Exodus is our story. You have set us free, free to worship you and love and serve one another. Help us to love one another well as your family. Enable us to pursue one another in a spirit of gentleness and love, full of grace and full of your truth. Give us, a, give us as your people a sweet spirit of repentance. May you be glorified and exalted through our humble worship and dependence upon you. Thank you for being our good shepherd who laid down your life, took it back up, On the third day, thank you for being our chief shepherd that you are reigning and ruling. And one day, one sweet day, all sin, sorrow, suffering will be in the rearview mirror and we will enjoy your presence and your goodness unhindered by anything related to sin. Teach us to worship you well in the waiting and teach us to be active in mission in the waiting. We trust you, we follow you, we love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name, amen. 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25, speaking of Jesus, our gracious Redeemer. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I pray that we would be a people who would welcome the the good shepherd shepherding our lives, leading us to green pastures, and that we would 
do that together. I love what we sang, that he didn't just redeem us individually, he redeemed us collectively as the family of God, and that we would live that out and love one another well in the way of Christ.